Hello everybody, I'm John Atak, and how extremely pleased I am to welcome my dear friend Mark Laxer today. Hi Mark. And uh, I'm saying this bit of nonsense at the start recently, which is that, that we are somewhat expert in our field by now. We have spent many decades crawling around in this material and wondering what on earth happened and what's going on and trying to provide some kind of answers. So we could be considered to be experts, we could be considered to be teachers, but we are part of a community of learning. And uh, as yet, we don't know everything and uh, we're working towards it. But so if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, anything that will advance our understanding uh, as a community, that would be fantastic. So there you go, there's my preamble. And today, what are we going to talk about today, Mark? I was thinking about talking about cult education. I was educated by a cult once. I think it's a kind of a difficult topic because I think mm. that uh, it's it's kind of I I've been I just thinking about this. So if you're teaching people, first of all, the cult leaders are teaching people about things that are potentially unknown and unknowable. Mm. Don Rumsfeld so, being a significant cult leader, of course. But no, so, if, if, so John, if you start at that position, it's like, do, do any of us, including the top scientific minds, um, those minds uh, I do very much respect, but even those top scientific minds, do they absolutely know uh, the absolute deepest story of our creation, how we came to be and uh, how does the universe and is there multiverses and uh, what is consciousness and is there a greater force that's guiding this or is it all sort of a physical universe and what happened before 13 billion years ago? There's so many unknowns. And who's, uh, who's paying for the next round? I wish great I, mistress. Who, great mistress. I like I like to know who's buying my drinks, Mr. Yes. I think that's it. That's the that's basic, isn't it? But it is true that that uh, we are born to mystery, live in mystery, and 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 will die in mystery, really. Yes, including Rohinton mystery, wonderful book, um, fine balance. But seriously, though, it's sort of like the cult leaders, the spiritual leaders, the genuine spiritual leaders, church leaders, mystics, they don't actually know. And when you leave a group that presumably had been, you know, if, if it's just called a destructive cult, you would assume that there was some amounts of abuse going on. If you leave a group like that, and then you look to something, Maybe you look to a book, maybe you look to Henry David Thoreau, or you look to a book by John Atak, or you look to a book by Steve Hassan. Um, all good things to do, in my humble opinion. But whomever you look to, maybe you look to Mahatma Gandhi, because you gain inspiration from them. Maybe you look to your local rabbi. Or, or my butcher, point is, the local butcher. 
possibly. You know. It was the butcher grandma. Dun, dun, dun. That's um, it. Yeah. When you leave a group, a sort of a destructive cult, and you look around and you sort of looking for answers, those people don't, I mean, they may be able to teach you to have guardrails and to protect your psyche. That, that's the sort of thing where a John Atak would be absolutely brilliant at, or a Stephen Hassan, in my opinion. It's like they can teach you to go on whatever path you want, but don't get yourself uh, abused. But those people don't have, or it's not likely that they have the ultimate answers to the universe. So, but I, I do, I do actually, Mark. It's just nobody's given me enough money to want to share them. But um, well, so, how much money, John? Do you how much need? have you got? <laughs> <laughs> and how much can you borrow beyond that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm. Um, so it just seems that it's it's a difficult thing being a cult educator or a whatever it is that you do and it, whatever it is that I do, it's sort of difficult in that if we are to be honest, we don't have a clue as to what all these people were originally looking for. So the only thing that we can sincerely and authentically do is point out the potholes and the, and the broken bones and stuff where in the past people have gotten hurt and and just point to that and say um dear friends you know as, as i say in the back cover of one of my books fly east fly west but don't fly into the cuckoo's nest. Um, in other words, go explore. Don't just sit home and lock the doors and, and start living a sort of a, a life where you're afraid of everything and uh, that you can't experiment, but, but be careful, watch your back and have a map. Remember what John Atak had said if you go join this group or you experiment, remember what John Atak had said, so that if your leader starts doing this and that, you'll have a roadmap with which to get the hell out of there. Yeah. And to be honest, John, tell me if I'm wrong, or if you think I'm wrong, um, that's the best we can do. Hmm. But it, it it's good enough because while not claiming to know everything about the universe, one can be a Sherpa and lead somebody to the top of a mountain. And one can say, well, I know how to get to the top of the mountain. And in this case, we are talking about routes and pathways and how people get to places. And what distinguishes the um, authoritarian leader, the cult leader from other people is conviction, certainty. They know what's going on. And what we're saying is that, um, intelligence coupled with humility tells us that we don't know everything it's very unlikely that we'll we will ever know everything and it doesn't matter whether we know everything or not what matters is the, the kind of life lives that we lead the relationships that we have and what we contribute to society and 
how we look after ourselves within society. And within those parameters, we can teach something. So may not be able to teach reliably the ontology, the origin of the universe, and we may not be able to teach the teleology, the, the end of the universe and how that will come about. Um, though it apparently is going to get very, very dark before that happens. Um, but we can say that in this valley of tears in which we, we live, which is not entirely tearful in my experience, I, you know, the Buddha was a miserable old sod who, who said everything's suffering. And, and I don't really believe that. I think there's a great deal of gladness and joy in the world too. But how to manage the suffering and the joy, how to be able to assert ourselves, um, how to define reasonable goals, and how to keep ourselves out of the clutches of people who mean us no good and who do not have our best interests at heart. Those are things that we can teach about. Um, you know within that purview and the first thing is that sense of conviction that when somebody comes along and says i have the answers to everything then it's like no you've convinced yourself you have a feeling of certainty a feeling of knowing about the universe but you know you're not you're probably not going to convince me many people on a daily basis people try to convince me of things and yeah, yeah. much of the time i find their arguments unconvincing and self-serving yeah, yeah. Yes, you know, arguments so, that are trying to sell me something, basically. So I, I hear everything you just said and um, raise you. I, I'm going to sell it to the Russian government. No, oh. just kidding. I hear what you're saying, John, and I agree with all that. But there is one mini interesting bit to, to toss into the mix. Mini truth, as George Orwell puts it. It's a mini Orwell. It's an Orwellian mini. Hmm. <laughs> or an um, OM, um, which is OM. Mm. So the, the, the bit I wanted to throw in there has to do with, um, well, I'm referencing it in a novel I'm currently working on, speaking of Orwell, um, where there are two types of people. Um, and now we're getting into human psychology. In the novel, they're called the certs and the chaos. Um, and again, this novel is not very far along because I've been working on a, a film, a screenplay, and I just don't have any time to work on the novel. So I, uh, such as, c'est la vie, such as life. But okay. I have started on this and I've thought a bit about it. And the idea of there being a bifurcation within a society between the two groups. They sort of were going to, this is inside the framework of the novel. They were going to go to war, but they decided not to, but they split into two, if you will, nations, uh, the certs and the chaos. What does it mean, John, to be a cert? Um, a cert is in, in this context, someone who feels less stressed when they're certain about the world around them. And the chaos has a very different mindset where they're actually, the world is spinning around and they don't know, I don't know what it is, uh, we'll figure it out. And they feel, they do not feel anxiety when the world around them is in chaos. Whereas the cert 
actually, and I'm, be, I'm being sincere in talking about this. I mean, it's a novel and I could joke about this, but I believe that in real life, there are, I don't know if it's half the population, but a large percentage of humans feel deep anxiety when they are not certain. And when, you know, like, how did you come to be? I don't know. Well, believe in this. Ah, now I have a framework. My anxiety, it doesn't all disappear. No. But it mitigates, the, the certainty mitigates the deep feeling of angst that permeate, permeates someone's soul. So I'm just tagging that along onto what you were just saying. You have some leaders who, I'm just trying to remember what, what you just said a few minutes ago, because I think it was spot on. You have these leaders who project this certainty. And the other side of that coin is you have 50% or maybe a 70% or 38% some large population of billions of people, billions with a B, who deeply need or want or feel that they need complete and utter certainty. And because of that, they are ripe for being taken advantage of because unfortunately, the universe we live in has not a huge amount of certainty. Yeah, and that certainty is, is very often couched in language. It's very often um, beliefs that, that are asserted in words. And when you start digging into those words, you find that the certainty tends to uh, crumble. Um, I, 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 there's a number that, that has come up again and again, and I've referred to it frequently and anybody who's um, spent time watching videos that I'm in will have heard me talk about this at some point. The number is 60%. And it's a number that was put forward by Schopenhauer, the German philosopher. And he basically put forward the idea that 60% of people haven't actually become people. The idea was picked up by Eric Fromm. And he talks about it in his book about how Nazism came about, Escape from Freedom published in 1941, where he says the reason that Nazism was successful was because people had a pseudo-self. Um, we then go on to Stanley Milgram, and none of these, as far as I know, none of these people references any of the others, which, which quite interests me, that they all come to about the same number. Stanley Milgram in, his, in the early 1960s performed his experiments out of Yale University with the pretend shock machine and the actor who screamed when a pretend shock was administered in his learning experiment. And he found that just over 60% of people were compliant to the extent of being willing to go to the extremely dangerous triple X shock on the machine and shock somebody simply because an experimenter said, it's my responsibility, you just go ahead and push the button. Um, then more recently, um, a psychologist called Jane Ferguson, who, who's at um, Nottingham University, and I should go and meet her because it's only six miles up the road, but I haven't. But she wrote again about this idea that about 60% of people who she calls apaths um, 
don't really make decisions. They, they go along with other people. And the way of looking at this, I, I like Fromm's way, which, which is that such people look to the outside for reassurance that they're doing the right thing. You know, that their hat is the right kind of hat that is approved of by society. They're driving the right car, that they eat the right things in restaurants, that they talk about the right things, that they watch the right television soaps or the right movies, that they dance to the right music. And this is a kind of herd crowd mentality that, and I would, I take it to a very simple place. And this comes from the work of Patricia Crittenden, who wrote a, a wonderful book called Raising Parents. And she basically says, let's push aside all psychiatric diagnoses. Let's push aside all of the ideas you might have about somebody being, you know, having ADHD or Asperger's or depression or what have you. Let's look at them and say, have they grown up? And I think that fits perfectly into Fromm's idea that the majority of people don't actually grow up. They don't become individuals. And then you have that <clears throat> group of people that Fromm separates out who he calls malignant narcissists, and which is recognized as the narcissistic personality disorder now. And they make up a small percentage of human beings, but they too have only a pseudo self. And as Fromm points out, they aren't actually narcissists. They don't love themselves. Freud got that wrong. Um, the origin of the word narcissist in psychology is Havelock Ellis before Freud. Ellis was the first of the sexologists in the 19th century uh, studying sex and trying to understand what happened. And he brought the word narcissist out of Greek mythology, the chap who uh, turns into a daffodil by gazing at himself and his own beauty in, a, in the water, in a pond, and <clears throat> said a narcissist is somebody who does not wish to have sex with anyone but him or herself. A narcissist is somebody who masturbates and is sexually self-enclosed. Quite different to Freud's idea of somebody who loves only themselves. And as Fromm points out, narcissists are incapable of love. <clears throat> it's not something they can do. So they want to be loved. They want to be adulated. And what Fromm doesn't connect, and I, in, in the half dozen of his books that I've read, which I think is interesting, is that to say that there are malignant narcissists is to say there are also benign narcissists. There are people who have an incomplete self who are not nasty in and of themselves. They don't demand adulation, but they are not fully formed. And so this would be to say that those people who demand certainty, who, who must have certainty, which I think we've agreed is something you can't actually have reasonably in this universe, um, you can be sure that you brushed your teeth this morning, but when we get to you know, the beginnings and ends of the universe and the purpose or meaning, possible meaning of the universe, or the hard problem of consciousness, which philosophers talk about, which nobody as yet has come close to solving, what is consciousness? What is going on here? And why is it going on? Those questions we cannot be certain about. Certain about. So all we can have is the pretense of certainty, the feeling of certainty, and tell the same or, story. Or, or the belief in certainty. Yeah. Um, but I think it is a feeling. I, I think, you know, the story I, I've been retailing for a long time. I was 17. A Bible basher stopped me and preached at me for a couple of hours. And I kept responding because, you know, 
I don't know how to walk away, obviously, there's something wrong with me. And he did walk away after two hours. And as he backed away from me to make sure I didn't leap on him and tear him to pieces, backed away from me. And he said, um, I don't understand the Bible, but I know it's all true. Now, that is the feeling of knowing, the feeling of certainty. And the point is that it's an illusion. So if somebody assert has got to this position, then they need to actually go the next step, which is to accept that we live in a fluid universe where meaning is beyond human perception at the moment. Um, you know, it may be that the Buddha or Jesus or, or you know, somebody along the way did realize what was going on, but they weren't able to explain it well enough for the rest of us to understand it. So a lot of people grab on, pretend to understand, and then enforce their rules on other people to say this is how you have to live because this is what god wants or this will you know you'll achieve nirvana through doing this and people then follow on that track and terrible atrocities come about you know as voltaire said if you believe those who believe absurdities will commit atrocities so if you look at the religious religious side the teachings that led to witch hunts and you know the persecution of other faiths the genocide of the Albigensians um, by Innocent III, Pope, or, or the raid, uh, you know, the destruction of Constantinople by Innocent III, or, you know, in our own time, Buddhist monks who are in uh, Sri Lanka and Myanmar, who are part of violent militaristic movements to kill people who do not believe as they believe. These are people driven by a sense of certainty that has become righteousness. You know, the dispensing of existence, willing to consider your, your own life more important than that of other human beings. Um, those certainties are very dangerous. So to live as a chaos, to live as somebody who accepts that the world is beyond our grasp. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to understand it. It means that we shouldn't have the arrogance, the hubris to believe that we understand it. Yes, ab absolutely. Um, I think it's very difficult to create a society where young people are taught to become adults, mm. to move beyond the benign narcissist uh, label or, or, or reality that you're sort of outlining yeah. um, in the last few minutes. And I mean, the problem with that is that societies generally don't want to do that because the certs are kind of controlling the institutions. And, and with obvious, you know, time, for the most part, the best of intentions, they really sincerely believe in the rules. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, chaos, will, chaos will come about if they don't. The problem is that it's, it's a fundamental lack of trust in human nature. I don't, you know, th there's this great point where, um, gosh, who was it? Um, uh, Rogers, Carl Rogers asks, um, are the, uh, Jewish theologian Martin Buber and he says to him I think you'd agree with me Martin that man is basically good and Buber pauses for a moment and says yes man is basically good and evil and 
I've arrived at that point that there are people on either side of that line saying man is evil. So it has to be controlled, has to be contained, has to be prevented and inhibited from letting out the real fundamental nature, which is the shadow self of Jung or the id of uh, Freud, this bestial creature, Mr. Hyde, that they believed lived inside of everybody. They were certs, you know, they, they believed in this complete nonsense. Um, I don't believe that there's any you know, evil animal living inside me or any other human being. Um, I do believe that evil can be done. So I believe that we have goodness and evil within us. We have the capacity to do good and evil. Some people are very bad. We call them psychopaths. They make up about 2% of our population. A tiny proportion of them are homicidal psychopaths. They kill people. Um, at the other end, you have empaths. You have people who are genuinely good and seek to do good in the world. And then there's the mass of humanity, the, the remaining kind of 96% of humanity, who are somewhere on a scale of good and evil, depending on what deities, what mood they're in, but also depending on the society in which they have grown up and whether that society has sought to make them responsible, allowed them to mature. And I believe our educational system is an institutionalization. An institutionalization is simply making everybody a child, making everybody obedient, making them follow the rules, not accepting that people's creativity and intelligence may lead them to become good, may lead them to want to contribute to society. And by inhibiting curiosity and inhibiting creativity, two foundations of our educational system in you know, the first, second and third worlds, we are preventing that you know, surge of creativity and positivity that keeps trying to burst out from the human race. We do keep doing wonderful things as a species alongside the dreadful things we do. So I think maturity and focusing on that and saying, you know, by the time you're eight, you know, when you're born, you can't do anything for yourself. By the time you're 18, you should be able to do all the basic things for yourself. Most especially, you should be able to think for yourself. You should be able to choose and decide for yourself. Our society doesn't encourage that. It wants you to buy the products from the advertisements. And, and that's about it, to, to follow the political leaders and have faith in them. Although we see that quite a number of them are in fact corrupt, no yes. matter what their party is. In a sense, it's quite ironic to, um, to have parents freaking out that their kid has joined a cult. Mm. And they run around as my parents did. And if it happens, you know, with my kids, you know, I'm sure I will do the same thing. But for, for, from a, the bird's eye view, it's really quite silly um, yeah. to have people running around. Oh, my gosh. Little Irving has joined a cult where this... <laughs> the whole society <clears throat> is training people to kind of be in cults. Exactly. <clears throat> it's enculturing people. Yeah. And, and it's, it's taboo to point out that sort of thing. Like people look at you like you're crazy because it's almost like you're inside a bubble. And the reason for the bubble is 
it's unspoken it's culture it's it it's it's our own rules and it's recursive and it's all um i remember i was talking to the great novelist uh writer some people wouldn't think he's great but uh paul thoreau and he was saying yes. cult and culture those two words are very similar and uh i you know i i think there was quite a bit of insight there when when he was he was saying that so so recently in in as homework for this film i'm creating um with a bunch of other people um i went i've been seeing a lot of films like the 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 screen uh screen play writers whom i'm working with keep giving me homework and some of my friends who are helping with this project are giving me homework so i keep seeing these films since last we've spoken i've seen uh like six or seven or eight hours of a rajneesh sri bhagwan rajneesh documentary and i've seen wild the, wild country yeah correct a brilliant documentary um well as, as long as you don't care what happened to the rank and file members of the group because it is only the leaders of the group yes. who are interviewed yeah. you don't get any idea about the the, the violence the, the sexual promiscuity that I, I I said the same thing yeah. to the people I was talking to. It's like it's it's it's, bird, it's it's a bird's eye view. It's not you don't see the destruction therein. And and that uh, I forget her name, but she was frightening. Renan Sheila. Sheila, frightening piece of work. Well, um, she is, she's fascinating. I'm going to stop at that point because I watched that, and I've watched lots of things about Rajneesh. I used to use a. Uh, a piece called My Dance is Now Complete, you know, when I did interventions back in the early 1990s, that was a very easy thing to show to Scientologists to, to show them that, you know, that they didn't feel, they didn't identify with that group in any way. And they could see that it was a cult and they could see that it was dangerous. And it was then possible to say, but, you know, they talk about the poodle press and that Scientology's attitude toward the media, isn't it? You know, what have you. But so I, I, read a fair amount and I had come read Hugh Milne's um, The God That Failed, which is uh, he was uh, Rajneesh's bodyguard and researched his childhood and things like that, wrote a very good book. So Wild Wild Country was fascinating, you know, seeing people who are still all these years later, utterly devoted. Maranand Sheila, I think, was sentenced to eight years in prison. Um, she performed the second largest poisoning in the history of the United States. The first was the smallpox blankets that were given to um, the first peoples by the second peoples of America. Why did, excuse me for interrupting, John, but I've never seen such arrogance mm. as, as I saw in Sheila. And, and I just thought, and not, I'm sure Rajneesh had his own measure of arrogance, but... But, but there's, let me make the point about Sheila, because it, it is entirely relevant. I was fascinated at the end of the documentary, and I'm sorry to spoil it for anyone, to find that Maranan Sheila at this time had been running a home for um, geriatrics with dementia in Switzerland, I believe, for some years, having come out of prison. So she was doing something that was incredibly empathetic, and that yeah. fascinated me. So I went and bought her autobiography. And this is a really fascinating book because in it, it becomes pretty clear. Um, the book's called Don't Kill Him. It becomes very clear. She was 16 when her father gave her to Rajneesh because he believed that Rajneesh was 
Bhagwan, the supreme god, as he calls himself. And so he gave his 16-year-old child to this dreadful human being. She then became the agent. But what becomes, I think, very clear within the book is that she only did what he told her to do. You know, she acted on his orders. She is evidently an empathetic person. We see how she's spent her life since. She's doing something that is gruelingly difficult, looking after old people who have dementia. I mean, I couldn't do it. I'll be honest. I, you know, I'm relatively empathetic, but I, you know, I would find it really difficult. I did look after my mother until she died at the age of 94, but she did not suffer any loss of her faculties. And having been around um, people with Alzheimer's or vascular dementia, I would find it really difficult to do that. She has done this for years. And what comes out of the book is that she is what I call a weaponized empath. She is a thoroughly decent human being who did evil on behalf of a man whom she still is absolutely devoted to. And as far as frauds go, Rajneesh is one of the easier ones to expose. Um, you know, it's not difficult. He was not a super mind. And it, there are two passages in this book where she, she just lifts them from Rajneesh's own books and reprints them. And I looked at these passages and went, these are strangely familiar. These are mistellings of the stories of Paul Reps from Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Zen Bones, yeah. The book that got me interested in Zen Buddhism uh, when I was 17. And I went and pulled out my copy of Reps, found both of the stories, and sure enough, Rajneesh has seriously misremembered these stories. So he tells a story about a man who um, he says becomes a great Zen master because he is with a teacher who, who every minute of the day hits him with a stick, whatever he's doing. And I'm going, no, he didn't become a Zen master. He became a sword master. Nobody could hit him. Yeah. And sure enough, so he's just somebody like Hubbard and, and so many others who just grabs hold of the bits he remembers of some story and tells it as if it was his own or it's some you know, revelation that belongs to him. Rajneesh is a fraud. What's fascinating, and she, she says, yeah, yeah, he was taking huge amounts of diazepam, of Valium. He was snorting nitrous oxide for a couple of hours a day, yeah. Rajneesh, which Hugh Milne, his bodyguard, also says, though the quantity of diazepam differs. Hugh Milne says 50 milligrams a day, which is about 10 times the normal dose. And she says 340 milligrams a day. Whichever way, this man was a junkie and she knows it. And then she blames other people for inflicting the drugs upon him and says, he really was God incarnate. Don't kill him. <laughs> you know? So I, I put all I, of that I, in because I find her utterly fascinating. I think she is fascinating. And I, I kind of, I feel like she was seduced by the power, the raw power that she he had 16, over 16. 16 years old. So um, I, I was just struck uh, in that documentary by how certain she was. She, she was yes. she was one tough cookie. She was so certain she was willing to poison people and-, and Hundreds of oh, people putting salmonella into salad bars so that people would be too ill to vote so they'd be she, able to take over the county. She was- They nearly did. She, she, she got quite frightening uh, yeah. to my way of thinking. 
but if she could pull back, God bless her. That's, that's great. Um, but anyway, so I saw the Rajneesh documentary. I've seen Eat, Pray, Love. I, this is all my homework. The Vow and Seduced. I haven't seen those yet. I'll have to um, see those. But I, I, I saw and, one. And um, Holy Hell. Holy I, hell. Saw, I saw something called Holy Smoke. Well, Holy Hell is, is, is an internal account. The, the other one I'd add is Kumare. I absolutely, that, that is one of my favorite documentaries ever, Kumare. So there you go. That, that's, I've just added to your homework. I'm so sorry. Well, about no, that's fine. I, I will definitely see those. I saw one called Holy Smoke. Yeah. Um, have you seen that? I don't remember it. I may have done over the years, but, but I don't remember it. Tell, tell us about it's, it. It's got Kate, Kin, Kate Winslet. It has Kate Winslet in it. Oh, it's a movie yeah, that I, I Rick Ross worked on it. And very then, difficult film. Is there a point in it where she wets herself? That's, that's the thing I remember in Holy Smoke. There's a point where she pees well, while she's walking along or something. It's a very strange shot. Yeah, well, the, it's, it's a sort of thing where... Um, it's about deprogramming, yeah? It's, it's about her being kidnapped and deprogrammed. And the person conducting the deprogramming was just an absolute... Harvey Keitel? Yeah. Uh, it, it just... Uh, no, I've it, never heard of it and I've not seen it. What can I say? Yeah, it, it was um, sort of the blind leading the... the yeah, the it seems to have nothing to do with what actually happens in, in the procedure of trying to help somebody. Correct. I, correct. Whoever directed that or wrote that screenplay, they were dreaming up of some, some fantasy that's very, very dark. And I think that that, that film has actually probably done quite a bit of disservice mm. to people who in the real world get hurt and other people uh, help them. But uh, in either case, what I found about that movie was um, just, I, this is one thing that I thought made sense in the film that pertains to what you and I were talking about earlier. And that is, it's really, people join cults because that's the way our society is set up. We join groups. We, and, and yeah. so, just looking at uh, in, in the movie, Holy Smoke, if you were to look at that family dynamic um, and their, the way it was set up, um, it just sort of made sense that she would want to find a, an alternate father um, and you know, just the way her dad treated her. And, but everyone was, completely surprised and I think that's sort of a metaphor for society then now that's not to the cult their father or mother are not loving or connected that's not the case but what I will say is that our society is un or our societies are unwilling to address early life education to protect people from cults because because we're mostly certs and we're all kind of cults already. So we won't do that. And we then act surprised like in the movie, Holy Smoke, where the mother and the father are like, oh, our little darling 
has joined this group in India. In that that in that case, it's it's over in Australia, but our countries, England, the United States, Australia, we are not doing anything to help develop people to learn about destructive groups because the line between the the churches and the this and the that and the destructive cult are very thin yeah authoritarianism is is an aspect of the society i i as far as i know what you say is true of australia and it is true of the united states but it is not true in the united kingdom anymore um for quite some years we we've had a a program of teaching within our schools, in all of our schools, which is to do with um, how to be a responsible citizen. And those programs are becoming, um, I, I mean, I'm actually working on, on a set of them at the moment, so I know that there is an initiative at the moment in the United Kingdom, in this very room, to um, create a, a syllabus which, which we have every reason, which will extend an existing syllabus. You know that there, there are attempts to do this already, but the the outline for that does exist within our educational system. You know, handed down from our government some years ago, to say kids have got to be taught taught personal, social, health, and economic rules, and you know citizenship and and how to do this. Those programs at the moment are some of them are very well um, developed, like programs on bullying, for example, but. I'm right, and I've also been approached by um, a leading school, let me put it that way, um, with the possibility of developing a specific curriculum for them to help their kids recognize these things in the world. So I think we're on the cusp of change. I mean, this is something I've worked towards for the last decade, and I'm just beginning to, to see you know, a way into the system. And I, I, there's, there's something that this the culting culture my um partner's dad used to teach teachers he, he taught english teachers um in a university setting and he last night he, he he told me this this story about when he himself was a teacher and he said that um they'd had a book and, and in it they had got um different nations and he was teaching sort of nine-year-olds or something and they they got material about Turkey, and um, he asked the kids afterwards to say what Turks were like, and they said they're like this, this, and this. And when he he said, and and what are we like? What are English people like? Oh no, no, you you can't confine us in the same way. You can't say that we all you know, we all wear feathers and we all do this. We have all sorts of differences, and he'd recognised this thing that that I've. I do see, which is our culture is normal, normality, normalcy. This is the right way to do things. And the first time that was shaken for me, I was about 20 years old, and I read a book called The Silence, which has subsequently been made into a film. Um, and the, the book was, is by a Japanese novelist called Shusako Endo. And he is writing about the persecution of Christians in Japan. Of course, the, the penalty for being a Christian at the end of the 17th century onwards in Japan was to be crucified. If you were found with any Christian artifacts, you'd be crucified. That was considered a fair punishment um, in Japan at the time. And 
What surprised me in reading this book, and I read Yukio Mishima and a variety of other Japanese novels and texts around this time, very interested in Japanese culture. What surprised me was that this man, Endo, who is himself a Christian, writing about Christians in the 17th century, wrote from the cultural perspective of a Japanese person. So there were things that were not recognizable to me as somebody brought up a Christian in England that belonged to that culture. And seeing that there is tremendous diversity within any culture, but we do tend to see all other cultures as cults, as you know, their beliefs are irrational, mine are rational, because I grew up in this. I feel that these beliefs are right. And part of maturity is when you start to question your own beliefs and say, yeah, I was brought up to believe that I should love everyone because um, somewhere in the gospels, it says that I should do that, love my neighbor as myself and love my enemy. And it, I found it very hard to challenge that idea. I did it and I can remember it very vividly. It was in July, 1991, because I'd gone out on the first formal intervention I did. And it proved to be incredibly scary because we were harassed by seven carloads of Scientologists who, during the four days that we did the intervention, didn't actually find who ever find who we were talking to. Uh, but they did find us and they did follow us and do, you know, try to get the police to arrest us and sent us flowers at the end, which we had a, a bomb disposal guy <laughs> happened to tagged himself on our team. So we had a very high level of anxiety. And I came away from that suddenly questioning the unquestionable assumptions of my own life. The central one of which was this notion that I ought to love everybody, even though I had walked away from Christian belief at the age of 13. You know, I'm now what 36 years old by this time, but I've still got this ingrained idea. You got to be nice to everyone. You've got to love everyone. You've got to do. And I had to think that through. That's something that bound me into my culture that was unthinking. It was not unknowable in Dom Rumsfeld's terms, but it was unthinking. And I think maturity is a point where you are able to think without getting too frightened about what you believe, what other people believe, that it's okay for other people to believe different things. Um, you know, I, I deal with uh, people of all sorts of beliefs and, and it annoys the hell out of them that, that I don't care what they believe. I don't care if people believe in God or don't believe in God. It doesn't even seem important to me. And that really annoys some people because this is the most important thing to them, that they're an atheist or they're a, a theist or you know, they're a Buddhist or, or they're what have you. I'm an agnostic. I, I don't have any idea about you know, what's, where the Big Bang, who had the Big Bang, that's the way I like to think about it, um, or you know, whether there's a steady state, whether the universe is eternal or whether there are multiple universes. It doesn't really bother me. Um, it used to, but I think... The, what you're talking about, it's a profound point. The acceptance of chaos, the acceptance of cognitive dissonance, the acceptance that the world, events in the world don't make sense. You know, the loving God wouldn't give five-year-olds terminal cancer. Well, the world's a bit more complicated than that. And, and what's going on in the world is a bit more complicated than that. And I'm happy to live with the chaos. So I'm definitely one of your chaos. Um, because I can't see that there's any way of you know, certainty to me leads to authoritarianism. It leads to um, deciding that somebody has 
you know, more capability. You know, as a kid, I believed this, that, that, that the authorities on subjects, the pol political leaders, they were people who knew about things. Now I know they're idiots for the most part. You know, we, when you look at the political leaders of the world, and you've written a book about one of them, um, people like Duterte, Bolsonaro, Modi, uh, Abe, um, Xi, uh, Putin, Scott Morrison down in Australia, uh, Boris Johnson in this country, and I'm afraid I'm not particularly persuaded by Joe Biden either, um, or uh, Justin Trudeau, that, that I putting faith in these people when they seem capable of making such incredibly stupid uh, decisions, you know, with our prime minister, it's that, that having ordered everybody that they couldn't meet up, he's had 16 parties during that time. And we now have an inquiry with Joe Biden, the idea of pulling troops out of Afghanistan and thinking that somehow things would work out. You know, I don't, didn't think they should go in there in the first place, but as with Iraq. But once you've gone there, you have a responsibility. And to give that country back to the Taliban, which was, I felt, inevitable and what I said would happen on the day that the invasion was announced back in 2001. Um, it, you have to eventually negotiate, you have to come to agreements. We have political leaders who believe that by brute force, they can achieve good ends. That has never happened in my experience. Brute force you know, and aggression don't lead to calm and quiet and, and pro-social societies. Yeah. So we live in a place that is governed by authoritarian beliefs and by this idea that there are these super beings who should be allowed to tell us what to do. Uh, and 60% of the people go along with that. And they believe in the authority without kind of going, no, these people are, they're human beings. They're fallible, they're, they're restricted. They often don't take the right advice and they often don't apologize for the dreadful things they've done. You know, Barack Obama should have given the peace prize back he knew he was going to send 30,000 troops to Afghanistan the next week. <laughs> you know, and you shouldn't be getting a big amount of money for being a peaceful person when you're deploying 30,000 troops. It, it, it's an irony beyond ironies. So we need to change the perception within society. It's not, for me, so much an education about cults, which is not something I've really thought about for years. Um, even though I talk about cults a lot, I, for me, that's just a little part of culture. You know, it's been culture for me, certainly for the last 25 years, that's important because within a culture, we are permitted to commit atrocities because of the beliefs of our culture. So we can go and kill people in a foreign country and we're, no, we're not called homicidal psychopaths because we killed these people. We are called heroes and given medals because we killed these people. Yeah. And I, I I think, yeah, I, I, I think that one way that younger and older people can get an education um, about cults is to travel because you're moving outside of your culture. And mind. Exactly. So um, you're, you're seeing the other. Um, I remember I, I'm, I'm Jewish, so I. Oh, now you tell me. I don't think I can talk to you anymore, Mark. No, no. So where were you, John? Where did you go? That's uh, uh, the screen went dark. It's mm. so dark in here. <laughs> um, 
I, I found it fascinating uh, uh, back in 2001, uh, I went to Indonesia for the first time, the world's oh, wow. largest uh, Muslim population as a Jew, and uh, hospitable and how wonderful and friendly. Yeah, I'm sure there's like 0.0 whatever, 1% of the population who uh, has, as any population has, has um, whatever dangerous people. But for the most part, I would travel and people would invite uh, me into their homes and here, stay here, let us feed you. Uh, I mean, I travel around the United States. No one's ever done that to me. I mean, people can be hospitable here, but, um, and then that was a real eye opener to mm. go to the other and everyone's like, oh my God, you're going to Indonesia, but what a beautiful place and beautiful people. Mm. And uh, I think, I think sometimes travel is the best uh, way to get out of oneself, uh, especially for more than a week. Uh, and especially if you um, get out of your bubble, like go and stay in a kind of place that you normally wouldn't stay in, or you know, try to have a little mini Peace Corps experience or just get out of yourself because you can travel and you'd still be, uh, protected and, and surrounded by whatever trapping so everything looks like at home. Yeah, well, you, um, you've still got, you know, the, the Hilton Hotel and the McDonald's and the, and the beach. And, so on. and, and, and you're That's watching... not really travelling, is it? That's Right, and at night you're watching whatever the Disney Channel or whatever yeah. it is that you're watching, whatever that means. Of course, in Indonesia, they're watching the Disney Channel too, you know, so that, that is a universal experience, of course, you <laughs> know. Yes, well, D Disney is is God, isn't it? No, I'm just. Kidding. Well, we all live in Disney World, don't we? Let's face yeah. it. But so, well, the, well, is it the red pill or the blue pill that puts us into Disney World? I can't remember. It's interesting you say that, John, because it kind of all. If you take everything we've been talking about and try to boil it down, I think what we've been talking about are stories. Yes, narratives. Narratives, narrative stories, and how those stories play out across generations, across tribes, mm -hmm. and how the stories we tell ourselves define us and hold us inside of bubbles or groups or, or so on. And when you travel, you're sort of doing what Jesus has said, you're, you're, you're going to the other. I mean, or you love the other, you, you experience the other. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that to me is, is one of the many beautiful things about Christianity um, in its, what, we, what I would think of as in its more pure form, um, uh, before it's filtered through all these, you know, people who are trying to um, convince others or trying to rise to power in a, a collect money <laughs> or collect money or whatever it is. Uh, and many of these people are quite wonderful. But if you just take that, the hundreds of millions of people's filters and just go back to what the man was talking about, uh, this young Jewish guy, uh, and that was to Jewish. Uh, That's him and you. Both of you. 
Yeah, we're in the same bubble. So if you look at what the, you know, look at to the other, and that's ultimately what travel is about. And if we were to have our young people in our societies go and find, I think Gandhi was saying this, like go find someone you hate or something and go live with them and shine their shoes or whatever, go to the other and study it observe it like for me that was going to indonesia and i found that the other was me i you know my best my closest friends are devout fundamentalist muslims uh living in lombok uh, which is one of seventeen thousand islands over there um i didn't become them but i tried on their clothes their burqas and i found how beautiful it it was and I think in terms of cult education, um, I think maybe by encouraging our young people to, to read books and to try on different frameworks, try on different narratives, try on different stories, uh, and not be so certain about one little one that someone's getting a lot of power if you believe in it, um, that maybe could help open things up the problem with that is I'm more of a chaot and that's more of a chaotic point of view where you have a lot of different influences. That's how I try to raise my kids. Um, and a lot of people are not comfortable with that, probably because that's how they were raised. Yeah, and it, it, is, it is so variable. I agree with you, travel broadens the mind. Um, my father, traveled very broadly and very widely he he was an export sales manager for a variety of companies throughout my childhood so he traveled to africa spent quite a lot of time in nigeria and kenya um he spent a lot of time in the arab countries he was very fond of the lebanon and was heartbroken when the civil war broke out there he spent time in egypt he spent time in israel he loved russia and at the end of his life he learned russian he by that time had eight languages that he spoke. So his attitude, I mean, it, it, he served throughout World War II. He signed up at the beginning and he was seven years in the army. And after the war, he was in Germany and desperately trying to, to find blankets and food for the German people, which I always rather admired about him having seen uh, Belsen. He was in the liberating force at Belsen, having been at Dunkirk, and and the Normandy landings. Um, wow. Nonetheless, he wanted to do something for the German people. He never took the you know the vicious attitude towards them that many people did take. I mean, um, it's reckoned that um, something like seven million people died in the Russian sector in the two years after the war. Uh, Two million died in the Western sector. Um, Many of them, however, from starvation or, or hypothermia. But horrible things happened. My father did not take part in that, and he never took on that attitude. Whenever anybody asked him what his religion was, he said he was Jewish, which wasn't, in fact, true. Um, he, he was an Anglican Christian. Um, but he would say it because he felt that when somebody was asking you that question, you should, at that point, say, look what's happened to this group because of a religious preference. And um, 
he in fact privately told me towards the end of his life that that um, he he was a, a primitive Jew that he believed he did not believe in the resurrection but he did believe in God you know so he didn't believe in afterlife but he did but so he'd come to his own determination but because he had traveled because he had seen so much you know when the Nigerian people decided they were going to massacre the Igbo he was traumatized by this thought but you know that he'd been in this country he'd met Igbo people and the idea of this hatred was he was not a particularly articulate man he didn't talk to me about these things they were expressions of emotion one saw but by knowing the other by you know finding out that it's a fundamental aspect of Islam that you should be hospitable and that's certainly something he found in the Arab countries um, something you found in Indonesia and not having this sense that um, and it is it's that this kind of dichotomy that that Jung and Freud and so many people in religion and I, I keep complaining about this recently it's an aspect of many psychological systems you've got this unconscious mind inside you and it's plotting against you no you haven't there's just you in there there are all sorts of unconscious processes there are all sorts of ideas that haven't you you know only kind of half registered like I I sent an, an email to, to my partner uh, this week and 15 minutes later I realized I hadn't put the attachment on it now I knew when I sent it that I hadn't put the attachment on it because I couldn't have known that 15 minutes later that's an unconscious process but it doesn't mean that there was somebody in there going ha, 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 ha. I stopped him from attaching that to the email and this dualistic view of of you know goodness and evil that if you believe something that I don't believe a couple of my friends are theologians I don't believe in in that stuff uh, it, but as a metaphor for our existence it delights me you know the idea of god this is a wonderful idea i've been what what um, hindus call an impersonalist for many years since i was a teenager because i don't believe in a personified force a personified intelligence that directs or creates the universe but i don't really have a clue where the universe came from and the idea of hurting somebody else because they have a different belief to me about, about that, just seems to me childish. It seems immature to, to not be able to say, yeah, well, you believe what you believe, that's great, explain it to me. Tell me your narratives. Tell me the stories that make up your beliefs and why you behave that way. And uh, you know, I'm with Joseph Campbell. I, I say this repeatedly, that, that mythology is not history. It's psychology. It's all sorts of other things too, but essentially it's psychology. Which is why Freud, of course, went to the Greek myths and plundered them for his Oedipus and Electra complexes and things like this, because these are patterns of behavior. It's why narcissism comes from Narcissus in the Greek myths. We take a story and we say, well, this identifies a certain human behavior. And among those behaviors are dogmatic bigotry, where somebody is incapable of accepting that anybody should believe anything but what they believe. And by travel, by meeting other cultures, by realizing how rich and diverse human thought is, you know, by going and reading Baruch Spinoza, for example, or, or somebody who's really thought deeply about all of this stuff, uh, David Hume, um, John Stuart Mill, there have been, you know, uh, Plato as he reports Socrates, as opposed to Plato and what he has to say, which I've 
not been as keen on, but some of the things that Socrates put forward are remarkably useful, particularly in the sense of where Socrates says, he who knows he knows, knows nothing. He who knows he knows nothing really knows. Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher, says exactly the same thing mm. around the same time. Um, and we, to understand, to have some humility and to understand that, that we're either going to, there are only two paths. One of them is that we're going to destroy the human race out of the hatred that we feel towards other people. And the other is that the human race will persist and become um, pro-planet, ecocentric. That's the word I like. Um, I don't know if I came up with it. I've not heard anybody else. But to look at the environment and say, you know, the human race could actually be the most positive thing on the planet rather than being i had somebody in the, in the comments said that um she was surprised that i, I or th that i had the, the idea it would be a bad thing if the human race was wiped out and um, that whales are much nicer and much better and i you know we, we had a little bit of john john that's just a load of blubber yeah well she then quoted so long and thank for all the fish and um, I, I pointed out that Douglas Adams was not a whale and, and that whales as yet, despite their tremendous abilities and the kind of rapist nature of dolphins, let's not be too Beatrix Potter about animals here, um, anthropocentric, that, that we've made stuff that, that no other uh, creature can make. And as the prophet Muhammad said, a man can be as bad as a beast or as good as an angel and um we have that that capacity and we need to evolve into that and we either are going to wipe ourselves and quite a lot of other things out um or we're, we're going to lean towards the light as the goats uh, Gawain and the green knight says we're going to act as if what we did would make a difference as william james the psychologist said and and seek to achieve something positive from our being, each and every one of us, and seek to understand that each and every one of us is a part of what's going on. And what we do and say and think matters. What anybody does and says and thinks matters. And joining into society and making something good and useful of it does mean, um, as Isaiah Berlin said, being intolerant of only one thing, and that is intolerance. That the one thing yeah, we cannot tolerate is intolerance. Exactly, which was which is why I would suggest that we don't ban books, we don't ban other narratives, as we're seeing in some of our southern Cancel culture, yeah. states uh, here in the United States. And it seems to me that the way through all this, as we were saying earlier, is to travel, whether that's physically or mentally. And uh, as one great uh, travel writer once put it, uh, again, I think that was uh, Paul Thoreau, oh, right. the road is good. The road is still good. The road beckons, the road beckons the young minds and the old minds. I'm sort of trying to channel Walt Whitman here. Um, and uh, I, I think that that's probably it's maybe the, a chaotic view of the world, but that's that's who I am. And I think in terms of cult education, um, 
if someone is trying to heal or understand what uh, where they should go or what they should be, recommend to them that they take a few months and travel. Yeah. And, and you know, as you say, read about such things. Bruce Chatwin's um, books are, are very interesting. And, you know, The Songlines is a fascinating book. Um, which uh, in Patagonia as well in Patagonia, which is you know, his first book, um, that that hit, you know, uh, or uh, where the green ants dream, which is um, the film version, accidentally of the song lines that um, his best friend was making while he was writing the book, but to to look at other cultures through through film through documentary. I'm tremendously inspired by film about, say, the Kogi people in Colombia or the Baaka Pygmy in the Congo area or the San of the Kalahari, that these people have very different cultures. Reading um, the sociologist Eli Sagan, uh, The Birth of Tyranny is a remarkable book, The Honey and the Hemlock, where he talks about democracy, um, his, his book about the French Revolution. Um, where you find out how cultures come to believe something. Or say the work of Raymond Williams, who was a professor at Cambridge here, who took apart the word culture. He, he started at the beginning of what we you know, he came back from World War II and said, culture is, doesn't mean just one thing. You know, we are cultured. Uh, the Japanese have a culture. These two were used, he then wrote a wonderful book called Keywords, which again, my partner's father recommended to me, which I'm about 70 pages into at the moment, where he takes 60 words and shows how their meanings have changed. And that in fact, we often have several meanings running alongside each other. So I, didn't, I hadn't thought the extent to which the word common is the root of so many words like community and communication. They both begin with the word common. And so we find that even the meanings, the foreign meanings, if you will, become important, understanding that the world is a many splendid place with, with full of ideas and full of beautiful human achievements. And the most beautiful of human achievements is a good community, I believe, as great as any wonderful cathedral or skyscraper, mm. where a group of people have come together and acted effectively and in a, in a loving way towards one another. And this has happened. You know, for 700 years, we had the Indus Valley civilization um, in North uh, West India, which did not have warfare. It also appeared, it didn't have any temples. It doesn't appear to have had any kings. So something, and Raymond Williams would examine the word democracy here and what we might mean by it, because it seems to mean very different things to very to, to different people. But they seem to have had um, an equal society, showing that a non-authoritarian society is possible, you know, that we don't have to be ruled by warlords. And right, you know. right. And hopefully such blips in history can occur without the certs coming and killing everybody. And the one thing I am certain of is that we need to embrace chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan Peterson, let's just wind up here by saying something horrible about Jordan Peterson <laughs> that time of day. I picked up his 12 rules of life, which is such a 
parade of arrant nonsense. It really is. And one of his first assertions is, it is traditionally believed that order is male, masculine. I'm going, which tradition believes that, having read a great deal about the traditions of the world, because I'm fascinated by religions and beliefs, and I've been reading about it since I was a, a teenager. So I've literally read hundreds of books about various cultures, you know, including a dozen of Joseph Campbell's books and a handful of Merch two handfuls full of Merchia Eliard's book books. And so we have this idea that it is tradi a traditional belief that order is masculine. So therefore, this chaos is feminine, according to him. And I waited, and three pages later, he took tells us about the yin yang. And you say, oh, this is a real, really deep student of Chinese philosophy. He's calling the Dai Chi the yin yang, as hippies and new age people do. And the idea that the Dai Chi is showing that it's got order at one end and chaos at the other. And you're going, no, it's got red at one and black at the other. Um, it's on, often shown as, red, as black and white these days, but red and black, they don't represent order and chaos. You can see they're both completely ordered. They're the shape of tadpoles. Each has a little eye in it, which shows that the other quality can emerge in it and that things are changing. And this man has become utterly confused about a simplistic explanation of, of Chinese philosophy. In this case, I'm going to assert, I've read about 120 books about Chinese philosophy, and I don't know what he's talking about. I do know that he's not talking out of the part of his body that one should talk out of, though. <laughs> he then goes on to tell us, rule number eight is that you never lie. So those people that kept Anne Frank and those people that smuggled Jews out of Nazi Europe shouldn't have done it because you mustn't lie. So when you should go to the Gestapo and say, I'm very sorry, we've been keeping this Jewish person. Never lie. What a ridiculous idea that the man's a, a buffoon. So I, I'm happy to have, um, <laughs> and, and we're not, we're not evolution in an evolutionary way related to lobsters particularly either, which he seems to think, you know, this idea of a layered brain that's got an old bit that's a crocodile and a new bit that's a mammal and then a human bit, and ne'er the three shall meet, you know, that's where it came from, but it's not necessarily an eternal situation in the human brain. It's not a very good way to look at how we are, to think that we're programmed to act like crocodiles and horses, you know, because <laughs> I don't think we are. I think we have this thing called reasoning. And that if only Jordan Peterson could get some of it, you know, that maybe his, he would, his cult would dissolve the millions of people who at the moment believe in this um, rather thin set of ideas, you know, the cult would, would dissipate. Um, and uh, add something to that, because that's not a good end point. Say something, say something brilliant, Mark, go on. Well, uh, <laughs> I think that uh, I, I don't know if this is the proper metaphor. Um, speaking of proper metaphors. <laughs> yeah. So let's see if we can find some meaning in this. Hmm. So um, um, the first time I was in Indonesia, I got in the water um, with as, as I was traveling with a scientist, a biologist and later found out that that was crocodile infested water. So um, I, 
I still say that the road is good despite, <laughs> it, pe people think that to leave your own world and jump in the water is dangerous. And I guess sometimes it can be dangerous, but <laughs> I, would, I would put forth the idea that um, it's better to experiment I would rather err in my world and experiment and not ban ideas and not ban books. In a sense, yes, I did join a cult at some point. Um, I joined a different bubble and I learned a lot from it. Yeah. Um, I think it, it was, I traveled. I traveled to a different place. And I think that that, I do like the idea of teaching people not to get, have to get stuck in one particular place that you travel to. So I would, I'm not of the, I'm not one of these cult educators, quote unquote, who say, don't explore, just sort of be safe and lock your doors. I do believe in having a roadmap and saying, oh, well, if you jump in these waters here, there may be a crocodile. Um, I wish I had known before I had gotten in that water that there were crocodiles uh, uh, there. They're 20 feet long. Um, I was much shorter. Um, but oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad to have traveled there. And I think, I think it's our role as educators, if that's what we are, to give roadmaps, to provide roadmaps to certs and chaos and say, if you travel here, there may be some danger bits. This is what the danger looks like. If you want to extricate yourself from that bubble, from that mountain, from that language, from that culture, this is how people tend to do that. But I would not want to, sh to have a society where um, you, you have these big protective plastic bubbles around you to protect yourself because I, I just think the world's such an exciting place. I think that's part of being human is to explore uh, books. And you, you know, you're reading this book and you don't like chapter two and chapter eight, um, but maybe you'll find some wisdom in chapter six, or maybe not. Maybe this guy's a total buffoon, but I celebrate the fact that you're, you read a lot. And I think um, you dip into different ideas and different, you know, sciences. I mean, some of the stuff I don't always agree with what, what you say, but mostly I just am fascinated that you're so well read and uh, you'd like to tie things together. I would hope that our societies suggest that people do more of that sort of thing. Um, go explore. The road is still good. And explore. Um... Yeah, the, the, it, it's a matter of you don't want to, you know, you want to understand that crocodiles are quite dangerous. And if somebody, one of the locals, always talk to the locals and see what they think about the waters and whether they're safe. And if there's a little red sign up and that says don't go in the water, shark infested, that, that could be sensible. But to restrict yourself, you know, to lock yourself in your own little room and never go out and, you know, 
Um, it reminds me of my friend Arthur Bookman. He, he spent 12 years locked in a room on his own um, with no human contact within a group that said that, that that was what would lead him to enlightenment. It didn't, you know, it just meant 12 years of sitting in a room. He's a lovely bloke, though, cheerful, wonderful bloke. Um, but to, yes, to have a diversity of experience, to, to not restrict yourself to a, a diet of um, McDonald's and, and to get something of, of other cultures and other beliefs and not get too serious about it, to re retain a sense of humour. When you find yourself becoming too serious about it, you're in a cult <laughs> and uh, things could get awful. So I, I think this, this, has been, this has been good fun, as it always is. And um, I hope that those who have struggled through to the end of this, this route have achieved enlightenment, uh, uh, but it, it seemed unlikely to me. So we would be very grateful because we're a, communi a community of educators. We're all of us educators. Everybody who has a piece of information can share it. So please do share this information if you think it worthy um, an amusing narrative. And ask us questions and and um, make comments and that sort of stuff. Very very happy to hear that. And correct me when I'm wrong, because um, I am told that that happens from time to time. Um, so thank you very much, Mark. It's been a, a wonderful experience, and um, and we will uh, do it always again. A, Thanks so always much. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much. How much money... John, do you how much have you got? <laughs>